1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For the second time since October, Sudan is without a prime minister. It seems clear the military isn't looking for much leadership help from civilians, and equally clear that enraged civilian protesters aren't interested in military leaders. And saffron is a potent spice, but a really expensive one. So you'd hope that the stuff you get is pure. Increasingly, it isn't, in large part because of sanctions on Iran. First up, though. Hong Kong's largest remaining independent news outlet shut down yesterday. The editors of Citizen News said they could no longer protect their journalists from Hong Kong's national security law.
0: The indications are clear that um, uh, overall uh, media is facing a, a an increasingly tough uh, a, environment. And and for those uh, who, who are being seen as uh, crit- critical or troublemakers, um, they are, more, they are more vulnerable.
1: Days earlier, police had raided another publisher, Stand News, and arrested its leaders. Police superintendent Steve Lee said Stand had conspired to publish seditious stories, inciting discontent among Hong Kongers and hatred toward the government. He warned the city's few remaining independent journalists not to make the same mistake.
2: The number one concern for artists don't be biased. Don't be biased you You know well how to report how to be a responsible uh, reporter, how to how to make a non-biased report to your readers. That's all I can give you.
1: The closure of these two news outlets leaves the local free press all but extinguished in Hong Kong.
0: So citizen news and stand news really were the last of a vibrant Chinese language media scene that grew up around the protest movement in Hong Kong over the past few years. And Stan News in particular became extremely popular for their live streams of the protests in 2019. Um, And they had extremely good coverage of the courts and criminal cases uh, that the government brought against activists and opposition politicians.
1: Su Lin Wong is a China correspondent for The Economist.
0: But the national security law is being used by the government to go after all kinds of sectors and industries and people in Hong Kong and news organizations are no different. So this law has really allowed police to prosecute these kinds of pro-democracy news outlets um, and their editors.
1: And you say these two outlets were, were the last of their kind. What happened to the others?
0: Largest among them was Apple Daily, the most prominent pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong, founded by Jimmy Lai, who now may spend the rest of his life in prison Um, It was forced to close in June, and Jimmy Lai was jailed for taking part in protests and also for his role as the, the founder and head of Apple Daily. Citizen News actually became a type of refugee camp for journalists, as one of their journalists has described it. So they took in many of the Apple Daily court reporting team And they also took in the whole China Bureau from Cable News, which is considered one of the best reporting teams on China in the world. And they also took in people from RTHK, which was Hong Kong's once free state broadcaster, but now really resembles Chinese state media. So it's extremely sad that both Stan News and Citizen News have been forced to close.
1: And what has the government said about these closures?
0: So after Citizen News announced its closure, Hong Kong's chief executive Carrie Lam denied that this was an attack on free speech and denied that there was any kind of chilling effect of the security law that Beijing imposed on Hong Kong about a year and a half ago. I certainly would strongly refute any allegation that this is related to the implementation of the national security law. But it's important to remember that Carrie Lam has now been totally co-opted by the Chinese Communist Party and is just following orders from them. But nothing is more important than the rule of law in Hong Kong. And journalists and media organisations like all of us have to respect and comply with the law. If they are fearful of uh, not being able to comply with the law, then they have to make up their mind and uh, take the necessary decisions. I think it's important to take a step back and look at what has happened in Hong Kong over the past two years. Effectively, the Chinese Communist Party has taken control of Hong Kong against the wishes of the majority of people who live there. And they then promulgated the national security law also against the wishes of the majority of people who live there. And so now they're using this term, the rule of law, when what they actually mean is just obedience to the party, And I'm afraid what we're seeing now in Hong Kong, with Hong Kong's leaders, is that they are just echoing the language of the Chinese Communist Party. So
1: what's left? What free media remain in Hong Kong?
0: The one remaining local independent news outlet in Hong Kong is Hong Kong Free Press. Uh, But they have a very small staff and they write in English, which not everyone in Hong Kong reads fluently. There are several other moderate publications like Ming Pao and the South China Morning Post, which have a lot of very talented reporters who are really trying their best and trying to get the truth out. But based on conversations I've had with journalists at these types of organisations... They complain that their senior editors are much more likely to want to do as the government wishes, um, and so they aren't really doing the type of hard-hitting reporting and analysis they used to do. And they're very cautious about not crossing what the Chinese Communist Party defines as its so-called red lines.
1: And of course, you have personal experience of that erosion of press freedom.
0: Yeah, so I was previously based in Hong Kong, but in November, the Hong Kong immigration authorities declined to renew my work visa. They didn't give me any reason, uh, but I know that local journalists asked Carrie Lam about it at a routine press conference, and she immediately made it about the national security law. And Chinese state media also covered the news, but in an extremely vitriolic way, labeling me a race traitor and using... A lot of horrible language that we frequently see used against often younger ethnically Chinese female foreign correspondents, who nationalist trolls in China think have some kind of obligation to bolster the Communist Party. Given this broader context, it's very hard to not see this as an attack on press freedom. And in fact, several foreign correspondents over the past few years have been denied visa renewals in Hong Kong. So
1: where does that leave the the pro-democracy movement more broadly?
0: So most of the opposition in Hong Kong is now either in exile or in jail. And Hong Kong increasingly resembles the rest of China. Uh, So the general feeling on the ground is that now, if you don't agree with what the Hong Kong government is doing, you either have to remain silent or you have to leave. And so we've seen large numbers of people migrate to the UK and Canada and Australia um, and Taiwan. So the protest movement that we saw make world headlines in 2019 has basically been crushed. It's shocking how quickly Hong Kong has gone from being a fairly free and liberal society and definitely the freest city on Chinese soil to an authoritarian one. And if there's anything we've witnessed from the past two years in Hong Kong, it's how well the party understands power and how ruthlessly it will wield it.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Suleen.
0: Thank you, Jason. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
1: After a coup, he rose to power. After another, he was kicked out. After negotiating with coup leaders, he came back. And barely six weeks later, on Sunday, he resigned. (laughs) Sudan's now former prime minister, Abdallah Hamdok, is a well-respected economist and technocrat. But his most important qualification is not being a military man his story reflects an increasingly fitful transition to democracy after 30 years of military dictatorship. When he was arrested by the military in October, Sudan's people felt they had seen it all before. They've been demonstrating relentlessly protests that have turned increasingly deadly. (laughs) Since October, more than 50 protesters have been killed. Yet crowds returned to the streets yesterday after two more were killed on Sunday. The military's back and forth on sharing power is far from Sudan's only problem. But the instability that it brings may be the most worrisome.
2: Abdullah Hamdok's resignation is probably the biggest crisis that we've seen since the Sudanese revolution.
1: Jonathan Rosenthal is our Africa editor.
2: What it does is it seems to completely throw into the air the transition towards democracy and you know looks at the moment as if it is potentially putting sudan back on the path towards uh, a military dictatorship
1: which is not so different from the scene that the last time we spoke to you uh, about sudan in late october when mr hamdok had been arrested by the military what what exactly has happened since then
2: so there is a clear path between october and now and and just to recap the army was meant to hand over to the civilians. And and it was their unwillingness to hand over and and to sort of move towards elections that led to the the coup last October. They arrested Hamdok, arrested much of the government, uh, and tried to seize control. But what we saw then again was that the protesters came out on the street, weren't willing to tolerate it. In mid-November, November the 21st, Hamdok was released from prison and reinstated. But it was quite clear then that that he he was almost like a hostage, a very strange press conference where where he did not look like a free man. And this very strange deal that he agreed to with the army that that essentially left the military in control, delayed the transition, and, and really left the civilian side of the transition in Hamdok much weaker than they had been before the second coup in October.
1: So Hamdok himself comes to power in the wake of a coup, uh, is overthrown in again a coup after a power sharing deal, and gets himself back into office on another power sharing deal, and and is back in office in November. What's happened since then?
2: So once again, you know, the real force that that's been driving this this move for democracy is, you know, the, the protest movement, the civilian protesters, and they saw you know Hamdok's reinstatement as as nothing but a fig leaf to cover. Up the fact that the army was remaining in control and was not handing over. So protesters stayed out on the street. And again, we've seen the military uh, responding with great force. So the latest protests and the the violence by the army against the protesters, the killings at the weekend, seem to have been a breaking point for uh, Abdullah Hamdok. He'd, in his resignation, said he'd, he'd tried to avert. Sudan sliding into disaster and and, and has been unable to do that and therefore had to stand down.
1: So he sees this as disastrous a moment for Sudan as as we do perhaps looking outside.
2: Absolutely. On Tuesday, there were more protests in Khartoum. People coming out again, demanding a, a transfer to democracy. At the same time, Sudan itself is in a very perilous situation. We've seen a sharp rise in violence in the Darfur region, um, a lot of that is, is conflict unrelated to these big political questions. But that violence has led to about 400,000 people being forced out of their homes and into camps. The economy is in deep, deep trouble. And at the same time, the transition to democracy seems to be really in question. The generals have, have said that they are still planning to hold elections. They've now pushed the date out to 2023. But it's very hard to see how people in Sudan are going to trust them after two years and, and a little over two years, and and endless broken promises.
1: So, how does this story end? Then, if the if the military leaders don't seem too interested in having civilian help, yet they are constantly being pressured by an increasingly angered uh, populace.
2: So, Sudan does not have a great history or tradition of democratic rule. What has changed, though, is that you do have you know young, educated people in the cities. Yeah. who are connected you know, to the internet, who are on phones, and have got very different expectations and, and, and are not really going to be willing to put up with another 30 years of, of dictatorship. So, you know, it really is in the balance. The army is willing to be brutal, but, but whether it can completely repress this movement is, 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 is an open question. The international community is... Certainly not going along with, with the army's attempt at a power grab. So they're putting immense pressure on, on on the generals to agree to a transition. But at the same time, as we've seen elsewhere in the region, people with guns who are willing to be absolutely brutal and and you know, sort of you know, don't give a hoot about what the outside world says, you know, can stay in charge for a very, very long time.
1: You you mentioned kind of obliquely the um international community. Is, is there any pressure that, that matters here or is this just kind of essentially a, a closed box from, from, to, uh, as seen from the outside?
2: So I think that's a key question. The outside groups that have been most vocal have by and large been America and European countries who've been demanding that the military get the transition back on track. A lot less has been heard from, from some of the countries in the region And arguably, they're far more important. So many people in Sudan believe that the October coup was conducted with the kind of tacit approval of other countries in the region, such as Egypt and possibly the United Arab Emirates. These are important allies for Sudan and for the generals in particular. Um, They provide money, they provide guns. So there is an argument that says, you know, to get real change, Egypt... And other allies in the region need to be having some fairly stern conversations with the generals. At the moment, that's quite difficult. But this is an area in which the EU and the US still do have influence. And I think what we're going to be seeing over the next few months is a lot of behind-the-scenes diplomacy between Western countries and Sudan's allies in the region to try to get everyone back on the same page and to try and break this endless loop of military coup and protest.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com intelligenceoffer offer. The link is in the show notes.
2: This is gonna be a really good rice. And now, for our little secret ingredient here, the saffron.
1: In Spain, paella. In France, bouillabaisse. In Italy, risotto alla milanese. Lots of Western cooking incorporates the precious spice of saffron.
3: The keynote is saffron. These lovely, burnt, brick-red strands. What does this do?
1: The saffron gives it an amazing color and gives it a really nice flavor as well. Uh Well, chefs certainly hope to get that color and that taste, but they may not. Most of the world's saffron comes from Iran, and increasingly, wholesalers, chefs, and home cooks alike can't be sure that they're getting what they're
3: paying for. Last year, Spanish police seized 400 kilos of saffron from a, a smuggling ring that was allegedly importing Iranian saffron, then cutting it with cheaper and lower quality ingredients, and then selling it on a kind of significant markup in the European market.
1: Jacob Judah writes for The Economist's Middle East and Africa section.
3: And this isn't an isolated incident. Fake saffron circulates and pops up all over the world. Uh, a recent study commissioned by the EU, for example, found that 11% of saffron for sale within the bloc was counterfeit or adulterated, and that number is likely just
1: the, the tip of the iceberg. And so why is this such a a focus for smugglers?
3: Well, saffron is one of the world's most expensive ingredients up there with caviar and white truffles. The price that you can get for saffron varies enormously depending on what sort of saffron you're selling. Uh, A spice trader who I spoke to recently in in Tehran said that he was quoting $1,400 in November to his clients for a very normal uh, kilo of of the spice. As with anything, where there's money to be made, you're likely to find criminals cashing in. And recently, saffron prices have really climbed exponentially because of reviving demand following uh, the COVID-19 shock, drought in Northeastern Iran, and rising labor
1: and shipping costs. So let's trace the path of this from Iran to our plates. Where along the way does the adulteration happen? First of all, I think it's worth saying that fake saffron has always, since antiquity,
3: been present in the spice market. But recently, U.S. sanctions on Iran have complicated the process of selling and buying saffron and ultimately getting it to our plates. So to get around sanctions, traders often use non-Iranian middlemen, opaque supply chains, and quite complicated payment procedures that go through third countries. So for example, a kilo of saffron can move by courier from Khorasan, the region that produces uh, most of Iran's crop, to Dubai, Spain, or Turkey, where all references to Iran are meticulously scrubbed before it's then shipped onwards. It's in that process that lots of the funny business uh, can happen. So it's often at these stages that kind of Iranian saffron is sometimes mixed with flower debris or cheaper spices or even kind of lower quality or or
1: old saffron. And so at the consumer end, we get adulterated stuff. What's happening at the producer end? What does this mean for Iranian saffron growers? Well, life has become more difficult, uh,
3: you know, as with so many areas of the Iranian economy, and especially so for saffron farmers themselves. While some of the bigger producers have been able to benefit from exchange rate fluctuations, it's really kind of smugglers and counterfeiters that are really able to cash in. I spoke with an exporter recently who said that it had become much more difficult to get customers' trust at the moment because they're worried about receiving uh, counterfeit saffron. He said, for example, that he was having to do time-consuming video calls with clients in Southeast Asia, showing them close-ups of saffron in his facilities, even before he sent them a sample. Other clients came to be worried about being blacklisted or falling foul of sanctions regulations for doing business with Iran. And banks especially are kind of nervous about handling transactions that go onwards to Iranian banks. So would farmers' lives theoretically get easier if those sanctions were eased? It's difficult to say. Drought has obviously been an issue, but sanctions don't make anything easier. And it hasn't always been this hard. You know, Trading was eased when Iran received sanctions relief after 2015, when Iran agreed to limit its nuclear activities. But unfortunately, you know, in 2018, under then U.S. President Donald Trump, Washington pulled out and reimposed sanctions. Now talks are ongoing in Vienna about trying to revive a a diplomatic pathway. And I can tell you that saffron producers are really following the news extremely closely. Jacob, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.